I was raised in a Christian household, in a gospel-teaching church. My dad came to faith in Christ when I was really young, and so I really don't ever remember a time when we weren't actively involved in a gospel-preaching church. And as a result of that, I really can't remember a time when I didn't believe in Jesus Christ. Now, there were points in my life where I remember, one in particular, praying to receive salvation in Christ. But I can't look back at a time where I didn't believe in Jesus Christ. As many children raised in Christian families uh, also have as their testimony. And because of that, when I became a teenager, and for another reason that I'll talk about in a minute, I started to really wrestle with whether I was a Christian or not, because I couldn't remember a time when I didn't think I was a Christian, where I didn't believe or didn't disbelieve in Jesus Christ, because I couldn't really remember a clear line of going from non-belief to belief when I got a little bit older and started to wrestle with the cost of discipleship and started to wrestle with the um, teaching that the Bible had about repentance from your sins. There came a time in my life as a teenager when I really wrestled with what's called assurance of salvation, where I really had no assurance or had very little assurance of my own salvation. And it was a difficult period of time in my life, a time of great fear that Christ might return and I would be left and excluded from his kingdom. Now, part of this wrestling, I think, was really um, a, a result of the fact that we had a new pastor in our church who was bringing much more doctrine into the church And he was starting to teach things like repentance and the cost of discipleship. And that contrasted from the kind of easy believism that I had been taught before that. And so I think what was happening in me was more of a theological maturity than it was a true wrestling with my faith. But many people, many Christians, go through times of wrestling with our own assurance of salvation. There are times when we feel confident that we are in Jesus Christ. And there are other times when we lack confidence, where we lack assurance of salvation. Some of those reasons for lacking assurance, some of those reasons why our confidence is weak in our profession of faith, have to do with faulty ideas about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's really what I was dealing with, I think, when I was younger. But some of the people who are wrestling with assurance do so because the object of their faith is not the right place, because their confidence is in something else besides God for assurance of salvation. Last Sunday, we began introducing this topic of where is a person's confidence when it comes to their spiritual life. And we looked at the story in Luke chapter 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector who both go up to the temple to pray. And one man, is the the Pharisee, is very self-confident. He praises God by extolling his own virtues. And another man comes in deep repentance and deep remorse for his sin and just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, it's the latter guy, the one who asked for God's mercy. He's the one who went home justified. And Jesus went on to talk about children and say, said how you must receive the kingdom like a child. It just needs to be given to you by God the Father. And at the end of that message, the big idea was this. Put your confidence in God, not yourself. 
That's what Jesus was teaching in this story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And that's what he was teaching in this narrative about the children coming to him and saying the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He is talking about people who are confident in God for their salvation, not in themselves. Today's passage, as we turn forward in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18, we reach a new paragraph of scripture in a sense because a topic changes, but the topic really doesn't change. Jesus is still discussing what confidence in God means. It's just a different um, method of, of, of talking about that. And so after um, giving these stories to us, Luke goes on to give us another story. This is an actual story. It's not a parable. It's an actual story that Jesus um, went through and Jesus encountered during his life on this earth. But this story, even though it's a separate story from the others, is very much connected with the two paragraphs or two um, ideas that we looked at last time. And this one goes further. After telling us to put our confidence in God in verses 9 through verse 17, verses 18 through 30 tell us why we should put our confidence in God. In other words, last, last week's big idea was put your confidence in God, not yourself. But a question behind that is why? Why put confidence in God? And I think this passage supplies the answer. Specifically, it gives us three reasons why we should look to God as our confidence for our spiritual life. Why our confidence must be in God and in nothing else for our spiritual future. And so let's look together at what the Scripture says about why our confidence should be in God. The first reason that we see in this passage is this. We should put our confidence in God because self-confidence is deceptive. Because self-confidence is deceptive. Look with, with me, please, at verse 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 18 says, A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. The Bible tells us that this man is a ruler. Another passage of Scripture telling the same story tells us that he is young. And so we are to understand that this is a man who has reached a certain level of accomplishment. And he reached it sooner than other adults in his environment, and other adults in his, um, in his area, his culture, the, where, the place where he lived. And we're going to see that part of the reason why he reached this plateau of respected adulthood is because he was a very moral man. He was a man who was very concerned about his own spiritual life and very diligent about doing what he thought was important to cultivate his spiritual life. And yet, even though he has reasons to think that he is good, spiritually speaking, he also has some level of doubt. Like many people who think that they are on a right path religiously, but secretly have questions or doubts about their sincerity or about the things that they're doing or about whatever, this man must have had some degree of doubt, unless he was just coming to Jesus to get a pat on the back, which I don't think is true. He must have had some level of questioning about his own life. And so he comes to Jesus and he calls him good teacher. Now this, he intended to be a sign of respect. 
He wanted Jesus to know that unlike the Pharisees who were speaking against Christ and the Sadducees who did not like Jesus, he liked what he had heard about Jesus. He found it spiritually interesting and spiritually healthy for him. He had a certain degree of respect for Jesus and his knowledge of Scripture and his understanding of God's will. And so he comes to Jesus to help him clarify what's missing in his own spiritual life. And so that's why he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He wants an answer to his own questioning. Jesus turns the tables on him in a couple of ways in this passage. And we see that beginning in verse 19, where Jesus says, why do you call me good? Now, this man probably didn't think a whole lot about calling Jesus good teacher. I mean, he probably put some thought into it because he was looking for a way to express his admiration and his respect for Jesus. But he was not quite ready to call him Lord or Master. And he really wasn't a rabbi in the traditional sense of the word. And so he was casting about for a title that he could give to Jesus to both convey his respect, but also not necessarily um, assert his allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus seizes on this. And he calls the man to reflect on the meaning of his own words. In verse 19, when Jesus says, why do you call me good? Jesus is taking the idea, the moral idea of goodness, which could also be expressed as righteousness. The idea of moral goodness. And he says, why exactly do you call me this? No one is good, Jesus says, except God Alone. Now, this should have been insightful to the man, but it wasn't. Jesus is asking him to consider the implications of his words. Because this man knew, like everyone else did, that no one is perfect. He knew that no one is fully, completely able and capable of keeping God's laws without ever violating even one of them. This is why they brought animal sacrifices to God, was to acknowledge their sins and their shortcomings to God's law and to ask for God's forgiveness. And so Jesus is saying, you know that there is no human being on earth who really deserves to be called good in the absolute sense. He says the only person who deserves to be called good is God alone. What's the implication? The implication is by calling me good, you're calling me God. And that's something that this man needed to understand. He needed to recognize who he was talking to. He needed to see that Jesus was not merely an excellent teacher and a moral man, but that Jesus was actually God in the flesh. That he is the promised one that God had said was coming. That he is, according to the words of the Old Testament, Emmanuel, God with us. And yet he did not see it. And this is the problem with self-confidence. As we're going to see in a moment, this man is looking to himself for his confidence before God. Now, he doesn't feel fully confident. That's why he asks the question. But his, the, the, the focus of his confidence, the basis of his confidence, the place where his confidence is placed is in himself, as we're going to see and that causes him to be deceived. It deceives him about the very nature of Jesus. Self-confidence is deceptive. It caused this man to miss the significance of the person that he was talking to. But there's more to it than that. Jesus goes on and gives him a, an answer that he could receive for his question. In verse 20, Jesus says, you know the commandments. 
You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. What is Jesus' answer to this man? His answer is, if you keep the Ten Commandments, you will receive eternal life. But notice that Jesus does not quote all Ten Commandments. In fact, in Jewish circles, and you may be familiar with this idea as well, the Ten Commandments were sort of divided into two tables. The first table had to do with man's relationship to God. The second table had to do with man's relationship to other people. The commandments Jesus quotes all come from that second table. The second table is a lot more measurable than the things on the first table are. But they're also very focused on what a person does. And so it's very easy for you to, for anyone to look at the second table of the law and say, yeah, I haven't, commit, I haven't done that, I haven't done that, I have done that. I've been obedient to this second table of the law. And so that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus focuses on the commands that are man's relationship to man or, or people's relationship to one another. And so that's why he's saying, have you committed adultery? No. Have you murdered anybody? No. Have you stolen anything? No. Have you ever given false testimony in court against your neighbor? Nope, haven't done that. Have you honored your father and mother? By all means, yes, I have. That's why the young man says in verse 21, all these have I kept since I was a boy. There was a concept in Judaism where a man had a clear transition from childhood to adulthood. We call it now the bar mitzvah. That language and the ceremonies around it probably come well after Jesus and the time that he lived. But the concept was very much alive during the times of Jesus. And so what this man is saying is, ever since I had that graduation, of what, however it was celebrated in Jesus' world, I've done this. I've been faithful to my spouse. I haven't killed. I have honored my parents and so on. He says, if you give me a checklist of good works... I'm doing really well. I've kept these all, he says, since I was a boy. What he's not focused on and what Jesus hasn't asked him to focus on yet is that first table of the law. In this man's walk with God, is he someone who does not have any other gods before God? Is he someone who does not bow down to graven images and so on? These are commands of God as well, and, but in many ways, they're harder to measure one's performance. But I'm sure if Jesus had asked him, do you believe and have you obeyed these commandments, he would also say yes. And so you can see that even though there are questions in his mind, his self-confidence is not about what God is doing for him or has done for him. His focus is on himself. He has self-confidence. And what Jesus is going to expose next is that his self-confidence has deceived him. Because self-confidence is by itself, is by its very nature, deceptive. Now, how is it deceptive exactly? Well, one way in which it's deceptive is this. It makes people think that you can substitute rules for relationship. When you think that eternal life, that spiritual confidence, is all about obeying God's rules, 
Then your confidence is in yourself and your ability to perform according to those rules. And it's very easy to create a checklist of things that you do and don't do that say, I'm good before God without having really any vital relationship to the person of God himself. This is what Jesus is trying to expose in this young man. He's trying to show him that his confidence is in himself because he thinks that his um, salvation, that his entrance into God's kingdom, that his eternal life, to use his terminology, is based on his performance. That if he does well according to the rules, then God will accept him. And Jesus goes along with that assumption for the sake of argument. Because this man is self-deceived. He needs to have a revelation about where his confidence is. I bet if you ask this guy, is your confidence in yourself or is it in God? He would say it's in God because after all, he is trying to follow God's rules. He is looking to God's words. But the truth of the matter is, by making his relationship with God all about rules... He has substituted reality for performance. And this is what confidence in self does. If you think that you get into heaven because you felt bad enough about your sins, to use our context, or said the right words in your salvation prayer, or anything else that's related to something that you did, then you see your confidence is in yourself, not in God. This man had a lot of rules and was a very moral man in obedience to those rules. But he did not have a relationship with God. He was self-deceived. And Jesus goes on to expose that self-deception in verses 22 and 23. Let's look at how he did that. Verse 22 says this, When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. So as well as this guy has done on the checklist of performance, there's still something that's missing in his relationship with God. And lacking one thing sounds like, well, you're not far away. There's not much to do. But the truth is you can lack something and only one thing and have it be a really big one thing. And that's the truth of this man's relationship or his status when it comes to eternal life. And so Jesus says this, when he heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Jesus doesn't exactly say what he lacks. This man needs to have what he lacks exposed. He needs to realize for himself what he is lacking. And so Jesus gives him this threefold commandment that he must follow if he's going to make up for what is lacking in his life. And what are these, what is this threefold command, or what are these three commands? Verse 22 tells us the first one is sell everything you have. The second one is give to the poor. And the third one is come and follow me. What Jesus is telling this man to do is divest himself of everything and put his confidence completely in Jesus Christ. And the only way this man can do this is first of all to understand that by putting his confidence in Jesus, by following Jesus, he is following God. He hasn't seen that yet. He hasn't realized that he is talking to God himself. And that's part of his problem. But he also hasn't realized how much of his religious ideas and how much of his religious experience are really focused on himself. He doesn't realize that he has substituted rules for relationship. 
And that's because there was an unseen idol in his heart, and that is what Jesus is attempting to unmask here. Jesus is unmasking the unseen idol of this man's heart. And the unseen idol of his heart is his money. While he religiously had his confidence in his performance, his confidence in this life had to do with his financial means. Here's a man who was looking to himself, the money he had and the righteousness he had, for confidence in living in this life and passing into God's presence in eternity. His focus is completely on himself, and yet he doesn't see it. Because self-confidence is deceptive. Self-confidence makes you think you can substitute rules for relationship, and it makes you think you can, or it, 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 it um, blinds you to the unseen idol of your heart. And how do we know this was the unseen idol of his heart? Because in verse 23, we read these words, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. See, Jesus was asking him to do a very hard thing. It would be a hard thing for any one of us to do what Jesus told this man to do. No matter how wealthy we are or perceive ourselves to be, or how middle class or how lower class or how poor we think we are, to give up everything we have and give it away to poor people and to trust Jesus for everything. I mean, this man was trusting, to follow Jesus means you have to trust Jesus for your food and your lodging and anything you have from this life forward. He's got no cushion, nothing to fall back on. No safety net whatsoever if he does what Jesus says. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is showing this man, or trying to show this man, that although he thinks he has eternal life or should have eternal life based on his performance to God's commandments, he hasn't really performed very well according to God's commands at all. Because he has another God before God. Remember? That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus was constantly hammering on the idea that someone who loves money, someone who is attached to wealth, is someone who treasures wealth more than they love God. Someone who has an idol in addition or ahead of God. And he said this More explicitly, as we already have seen, in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, where Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so the words that Jesus gave to this man are not prescriptions for everyone who wants to follow Jesus Christ. He's not saying all of us who follow Jesus have to divest ourselves of everything we own and give it to the poor, and follow Jesus. No, he is homing in on the idol of this man's heart, the thing that he loves more than he loves God. And the truth of the matter is, everyone who has self-confidence, who thinks it's their religious performance, their good works, or their performance even in evangelical ways of thinking it's my prayer that saves me, every one of us who has some kind of self-confidence when it comes before God is deceived because we have a hidden idol of the heart that's more important to us than God himself. And so why, do you, why should you put your confidence in God? One is because self-confidence is deceptive. And it's very possible for people 
living in our age, attending evangelical churches like ours, who know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. There, it's very easy and it's very possible for someone to have that as their profession of faith from their mouth and yet have a hidden idol in the heart and have their confidence really in themselves. And some people, not everyone, but some people who struggle with assurance of salvation do so because their confidence is really in themselves. It's because, although it's maybe hidden to them, they've been deceived into thinking that their confidence is in God when it really is in self. So this is the first reason why we must put our confidence in God, not ourself. Self-confidence is deceptive. This man thought he was probably in good stead and he was probably just looking to Jesus for reassurance. Maybe if Jesus had given him something else to perform that didn't touch on the idol of his heart, he would gladly have performed formed it so that he could have that last little bit of assurance that he needed. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus unmasked that this man was far from God because he had an idol in his heart, and yet he was self-deceived. So the first reason to put your confidence in God is that confidence is, self-confidence is deceptive. The second reason is given to us in verses 24 through 27, and that reason is this. You should put your confidence in God, not yourself, because God is the only one capable of saving you. See, this man thought he was capable of saving himself. He thought that by performance according to good works, he could earn enough credit with God, enough favor with God, to be received by God on the day of his death. But the truth of the matter is, saving yourself is impossible. No matter how moral you have lived, no matter how well you have done compared to other people, remember that's one of the bases of self-confidence is comparing ourselves to others. No matter how well you've done in comparison to others, it is impossible for you to save yourself or for anything else other than God himself to save you. The reason why you need to put your confidence in God if you're going to know God and experience him in this life and in eternal life is because only God can save you. And we see that as the story continues to unfold in verse 24. The scripture says, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now this should have been insightful too. This, this apparently is the first time these two men have met. And yet in just the course of a few words, Jesus has unmasked the false basis of this man's confidence and the fact that he is wealthy. This should have been a clue to him that he was not merely speaking to a good teacher, but in calling Jesus good, he was swerving into a truth that he was talking to God. Jesus has insight into this man's life that no one else could have. Jesus knew that he was rich. And how could he have known that? Other than that he is God, and God knows all things. But Jesus makes this remark in verse 24 and says, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then Jesus takes it further to tell us exactly how hard it is. In verse 25, he says, indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you've been a Christian for a long time, if you've been a, in the church for a long time, I think it's highly likely that you have heard a wrong interpretation of verse 25. 
And that wrong interpretation goes something like this, that somewhere in some city, maybe Jerusalem, there was a certain gate to the city. Remember, most cities in the ancient world had walls and they had gates to let you in. And you may have heard that somewhere, maybe in Jerusalem, there was a gate that was so low that a huge animal like a camel could not walk through that gate. And so instead, the camel had to get on its knees and kind of shimmy along on its knees to get under that gate. And that gate was called, guess what, the needle's eye. And so what Jesus is saying here, you may have heard, is not that a literal camel, this massive animal, needs to go through this literal eye of a needle, this tiny thing. You may have heard that that's not what Jesus is saying, but rather that like a camel going through the needle's eye, you have to get down on your knees and humble yourself. That is not what Jesus is saying. There is no such gate. Archaeology, I should say, neither archaeology nor any text of Scripture we have from that time or any text outside of Scripture from that time refers to such a gate. Somebody made that up. What Jesus is saying here is not that you have to get on your knees to get in the kingdom of God, although that's true. You do have to humble yourself before God. What Jesus is saying is something much much harder than that. He's telling us how how, why it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What he's saying is, it's like a literal camel, this massive animal going through the literal eye of a needle. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. What you think Jesus is saying is what Jesus is saying. You got to put that big animal through this little eye. It ain't going to happen, right? And you know that this is the right interpretation, not only because I've told you, but for a greater reason, because the scripture itself says so. Look at the next verse. Verse 26, those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, what is impossible with man? That's the point. Jesus creates this weird, this really strange, hard to conceptualize analogy and says it's easier for this huge animal to go through this tiny thing than it is for a rich man to to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says this so that we will remark upon the impossibility of being saved. That's the point. Jesus is saying there is no other way into God's presence. There is no other way of getting eternal life than doing the impossible. God is the only one capable of saving you. That's what he's trying to show this man, that he needs not a change in his thinking in his checklist. He needs a change of heart. He needs to exchange the idol of his wealth for the true God, the one who actually stood before him. And once God became the object of his desire, once he loved the Lord his God with all his heart, because there was nothing else in his life going for him, because he got rid of all of it. Once that happened, then he would have some confidence before God. But that happening was an impossible task. That's what Jesus is saying here. Getting into God's kingdom is impossible. It is impossible for anyone ever to get into God's kingdom. That's what Jesus is telling us in these verses, verses 24 and 25. And so when he's asked then in verse 26, those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus gives the next important thing to know, which is this. God can do the impossible. Being saved is impossible. Fortunately, God specializes in impossibilities. 
That's why Jesus says in verse 27, what is impossible with man is impossible with God. What he's saying here is it takes a spiritual transformation. What we call the the doctrine of giving someone new life, regeneration we call it in doctrinal terms. That's what this man needed. He needed a miracle in a sense. He needed a work of God in his life to where he didn't care about his money anymore. All he cared about was knowing and loving God. When that happened, then his, his confidence would move from himself to God in the real sense. And if you've come here this morning and you're wrestling in your soul about your spiritual life, you're wondering if you really know God or not. You're wondering if you've done enough to earn God's favor. You're wondering if the, pray you, the prayer you prayed was sincere enough or if you were repentant enough for your sins. Please, please understand your confidence is in yourself. Your profession of faith may be very evangelical, but the locus of your faith is not in God. And the only way you're going to find yourself in the presence of God when your life is over is to trade self-confidence and whatever the idol of your heart is for true faith in God, because only God can do the impossible task of saving anyone. That's what Christ is teaching us in this passage. There are three reasons that this passage teaches us for why we should put our confidence in God. The first is that self-confidence is deceptive. Self-confidence will damn your soul for eternity while giving you the feeling that you're doing well. The second reason is that that God is the only one capable of saving you. What's the third reason? We see that at the end of our text in verses 28 through 30, and the answer is the rewards will be worth it. The rewards will be worth it. Look with me at verse 28. The scripture says, Peter said to him, we have left all to follow you. See, Peter, he's very concerned about this language. Not that Peter or any of the apostles probably were very wealthy men, maybe a few exceptions. But Jesus, or Peter is saying, what we had, we did give up. I gave up my fishing business, Jesus, to follow you. My boat has been sitting on the docked, you know, on the Sea of Galilee for three years while I've been following you around. And so he's, what Peter's looking for is some reassurance here about what the cost of discipleship has meant to him. And the fact that he does love God with all his heart is evidenced by the way that he is acting. And so Peter's concerned. He says, he's saying here, we have left all to follow you. And Jesus gives these very reassuring words. In verses 29 and 30, he says, Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. What's the point of this section? The point is, it will be worth it. It may cost you all you have to be a follower of Jesus Christ. For this man specifically, it would have cost him all that he had. Everything that he held dear, Jesus tells him to get rid of. Give it to poor people. Trust Christ and follow him. Because he had this idol in his heart, it would literally cost him everything to follow Jesus Christ. But Jesus talks about the relational cost that also comes along with following Jesus Christ. That's the point of Verses 29, or verse 29 specifically. Jesus says, no one who has left home. Peter left his home behind. He left the town that he was from in Galilee. 
to follow Jesus around. He says, or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children. Now, you understand that our Christian faith does not call us to cut off relationships with these people. It calls us to invest in relationships, to honor our parents, to love our wife and to honor our spouse and so on. The Bible commands us to be better at these things, not to leave them behind. But the point is that if you commit fully to Jesus Christ, if you follow God with all your heart, there might be a relational cost. Your spouse might not go with you on that commitment. Your parents might cut you off and so on. Jesus is saying it might cost you everything that's important to you, whether it's money or whether it's relationships. Following Jesus Christ may cost you everything. It will cost you something. Every follower of Jesus pays some kind of price to follow him. And the Bible teaches this over and over again in multiple places. Following God may cost you everything, but Jesus reassures us that God gives more than he takes to those who follow him. Did you notice back when Jesus was talking directly to the rich young ruler in our passage and he gave him the threefold command of what he must do to inherit eternal life. Did you notice a little phrase that was dropped in there that I kind of skipped over? Well, let's go back and look at it because it, sets the, it, it kind of plants the seed for what Jesus says here. In verse 22, Jesus says, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, if you give up everything you have and stop being a wealthy man who has confidence in yourself, you will get wealthy again, but it'll be in eternity. That's the promise. That's the step of faith this man had to take. That by getting rid of his idol, his personal wealth, and following Jesus, there would be a payoff in eternity. You will have treasure in heaven, Jesus said. Now Jesus turns to the relational aspect in these verses. And in verses, verses, verse 29, when he talks about all the relationships that a disciple may have to give up, he says in verse 30, anyone who does this will not fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. What's Christ saying here? What Christ is saying here is it may cost you your family to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that may be very dear and near and dear to your heart. Your idol may not be money. It may be approval. It may be love. It may be the, the people in your life. And following Jesus might cost you them. But he says, you will receive many times as much in this age. What he's talking about here is the family you inherit when you become a Christian. The family of faith. The group of other believers who may be different from you in every way, but share a common faith in Jesus Christ. We never follow Jesus alone. The following that Jesus commands us to do happens in a band. A band of people who are called together by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, who share a common set of doctrine and principles and a common commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says you're not going to be alone in this world if your family forsakes you. You'll receive much more because you'll be part of the community of followers. And, he says, in the age to come, eternal life. Confidence in God sounds simple, but it isn't simple at all, in a sense. It's, in fact, it's impossible. Only the work of God in you can cause you to do 
the things that are described here, to get rid of all the things you hold on to in your self-confidence and trade it all for faith in Jesus Christ. It takes a supernatural act of God for this to happen. And yet the promise of God is, if you'll trust me, if by faith you'll stop looking to yourself and instead put your complete confidence in me, whatever that means, if you trust me and me alone, it will be worth it. You'll have a family in this life, an eternal life in the next. This is why you and I should put our confidence in God, not in ourselves. Because self-confidence is deceptive, because God is the only one capable of saving you, and the rewards will be worth it. And so the big idea for this message is all of that put together. Put your confidence in God. Why? Because self-confidence is deceptive. Because God is the only one capable of saving you. And the rewards will be worth it. If you've come here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, let me urge you to put your confidence in God. We would love to sit down and take you through these truths in a a more... um, in a way that we can develop them more and answer your questions. And so if you're not a Christian, if you take out your response card and just turn it over, there's a line there that says, I would like to know more about how to become a Christian. Just put an X there. And we'll contact you this week and and take time to show you in more detail and answer your questions and show you what it means to become a Christian. If you are a Christian, the truth of the matter is that pretty much any problem that an unbeliever can struggle with, a believer can also struggle with. We also are tempted by the same things that bound us in sin. And some of this can be, even though our confidence may be in God, we can sometimes be tempted to shift our confidence back to ourselves. And so a passage like this, a, 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 a big idea like this, reminds us to get clear on what we're really trusting in this life. If you have fears about finances, fears about the loss of relationship, it may show that your confidence is not in God alone. Put your confidence in God because self-confidence is deceptive. God is the only one capable of saving you, and the rewards will be worth it.